Today in the four Fabulous 413, we take you on an audio tour of the abolitionist history of Florence at the David Ruggles Center. Scorched Grace, a new novel about a chain-smoking, heavily tattooed queer nun who puts her amateur sleuthing skills to work, written by Northampton author Margot Duwahi, will be at the Odyssey next week and will join us later this hour. And beer! The 413 is a wash in craft breweries, but only one black-owned brewery that we know of, and it's right across the street from us here in Springfield. We'll share a pint with White Lion Brewing owner Ray Berry. But liquor before beer. The city of Northampton has canceled the Pearl Street nightclub liquor license from club owner Eric Shore, with some of Shore's other liquor licenses potentially on the cusp of being canceled. What does that mean for the future of the Iron Horse Entertainment Group? And why is Northampton interested in getting more liquor licenses from the state while limiting pot shop licenses? Let us know what you think. Email the Fab 413 at nepm.org or call 1-800-639-9120. To help us better understand Northampton's decision to cancel or seize the liquor license and maybe can explain the difference between the two is Jill Kaufman from the NEPM News Department. Hello there, Jill. Hey there, Monty. Hi, Khalees. Hello. <laughs> Here's a clip from the Northampton Liquor License hearing from this week between License Commissioner Chair Natasha Yakovlev and Iron Horse Entertainment Group owner Eric Shore. I want to stress again, Eric, we're, we're looking for plan, how you're planning to use these licenses when these licenses are going to be resumed for use. What would you like me to do? Well, that's your call. You're the business owner. So I'm, I, and no, all I'm asking me, business- I'm not asking from that standpoint. I'm asking in terms of what you want me to do in terms of getting you information. From my perspective, what we want to know is when you're reopening the businesses. Okay. That's what needs to happen. That's the information that w- that we need. And it's a difficult thing to look at in the landscape of peer businesses locally being open and selling out shows. You know, the, the, the music world in Northampton and surrounding towns has actually been growing and there's nothing happening at your venues and the licenses aren't being used. Mm-hmm. That's that's the reason we're here is to talk about these licenses and whether or not they're in compliance for you have intentions to reopen Pearl Street. Yes, we do. And yet the commission has decided to revoke that license anyway. Jill Kaufman, why is that happening? Well, um, plain and simple to the commission, this venue, Pearl Street, has not been open in months. And um, uh, Eric Shore explained how he has been moving shows around or had been moving shows around to different venues because of COVID restrictions and, and such. But these licenses are really um, a hot commodity. There are restaurants and other types of venues that want to have a full alcohol license. Um, the commissioner explained to me that when they do get one back in the city's hands, because they're, they can be sold also as well on the open market, but when the city gets one back, they go into lottery and eight restaurants at a time might show up or eight venues at a time might show up and, and buy for it and try to get it. Um, they would like, the city would like to get these licenses back into the hands of um, venues that might use them five, six, seven nights a week instead of what is happening is that they're just on hold with, um, at least for Pearl Street. Um, and, uh, you know, we could see, we're going to see what's going to happen by June 1st as far as um, the Iron Horse and, of course, the Green Street, which is, I'm sorry, the Green Room, which is just a bar, not a, not a music venue. Why is having a full liquor license so important to Eric Shore's business model? Well, I think it's, I think it's for Eric Shore's business model and for others as well. Uh, liquor brings in money (laughs) liquor brings in you know bars bring in audiences as well but 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 the sales of liquor drinks at a bar brings in a a lot of revenue the the markup is quite uh, significant for a restaurant and for and for music halls as well 
And for Eric Shore, um, he, he said this, but I think we could all step back and look at that. There is an economy of scale in which he has to operate. He has so much property. He has, uh, let alone you know any other kind of real estate, he has these operations that have to be staffed. Um, they have to be licensed in various ways. They have to have also um, sort of rec- recording soundtrack uh, licenses, as we, we know. Um, uh, we've been watching this scenario that had played out at the Calvin last year about licensing of music played uh, in the lobby, even, I believe. Um, so um, the license is important so he can, you know, c- can bring in revenue, essentially. Um, there are different types of licenses, though. It doesn't have to be an all-alcohol license for a venue, but that is the kind that, that he is choosing. And the commissioners pointed out uh, a few times that other music venues in Northampton and Amherst are booked and open, and they don't have these all-year-round licenses uh, to sell um, cocktails. They have beer and wine licenses, if any license at all. Um, he is, you know, he's saying he needs this all-year, all-alcohol type of license. Uh, he said this at the February 14th meeting. Um, and I just want to play you another clip. Um, you're going to hear Commissioner Helen Kahn asking Eric Schur a question. How important is is hard alcohol to someone coming to a show? Very, very like if they you you booked a fantastic act and people knew that they couldn't get a gin and tonic not to be whatever glib about it they I, I don't, might not I, come I, or um just I can't answer that subjective I could tell you that without that license we wouldn't be able to operate you know in the manner by which we've operated you know so I think people come with expectations especially certain shows people come with expectations that um, at least as they've come to our shows since we opened in '98. Um, you know, I think uh, I think the expectation is that they, you know, are going to be able to get a, a drink, whether it be beer, wine, or hard alcohol. That that 1998, um, I just want to point out, Monty and Kalise, that he's referring to the Calvin. But I think that um, I believe, uh, just listening to this and being a reporter on this, this applies to the Iron Horse as well. Um, this this model, this need for this kind of liquor license to bring in that audience. Um, one other thing I just want to point out also is that. Um, he kept talking about what got him to this point. Eric sure did. He was speaking about the restrictions in place at the height of the pandemic. Um, and the commissioners, especially the chair, uh, uh, Commissioner uh, Yakovlev, said they are talking about what is happening now and they are talking about what's happening in the future with these licenses. They need to keep the city vibrant. Well, as the volunteer president of the board of a theater who is on Monday applying for an all liquor license from a beer and wine license in Turner's Falls, uh, I know it is possible to operate without an all liquor license, but it does sure make the economics of it all uh, a lot easier. Yeah, I, I think I think it is definitely up to the um, particular business model that that someone is um, ex- uh, running or experiencing in that way. Well, thank you, Jill, for helping clarify this. Jill Kaufman from the NEPM News Department. We want to hear your thoughts on Northampton's decision to pull the Pearl Street liquor license. You can email us at thefab413 at nepm.org. Full disclosure, I used to work at Iron Horse Entertainment Group, (laughs) so I have a little bit of insider baseball. Maybe you've heard of Sojourner Truth or Frederick Douglass, but how much do you know about David Ruggles and his importance to the abolitionist history of Northampton? Let's take you on a tour of the David Ruggles Center. Part of the reason we're at the David Ruggles Center is that he didn't get to tell his story in the way that Sojourner Truth did and and many other people. He didn't live long enough, so we're trying to contribute to to that. And also, he had a big influence on Sojourner. He was here a year before her. He was the one who encouraged her to start speaking about her experiences in slavery, and she started incorporating sort of politics into her religious preaching. 
we, we believe that he had a, a big influence on her, as I'm sure she had a big influence on him. My name is Kevin McQuillan, and I'm a member of the board of the David Ruggles Center. And I'm Kim Gerald, also a member of the board of the Ruggles Center from Northampton. So we're at the David Ruggles Center in Florence. It's a, a small house. David Ruggles didn't live here, but it's a, a museum, and you're two of the members of the board here. The Ruggles Center is named after David Ruggles. Who is or was David Ruggles? So David Ruggles was a black abolitionist. He was from Connecticut, so he was born into a free black family. And he did a lot of organizing and rabble-rousing in New York City during his 20s and early 30s and became very well known. He was a leader of the Underground Railroad, the New York Vigilance Committee, he helped Frederick Douglass get out of slavery, but eventually he was ill and he came here to Florence and joined this utopian community, the Northampton Association. People may have come to this neighborhood of Florence, Northampton, maybe you've seen the Sojourner Truth statue that stands proudly right near here, and inside this Ruggles Center we're in a room that seems to be largely dedicated to Sojourner Truth. For those who don't know who Sojourner Truth was, tell us a little bit about Sojourner Truth. So Sojourner Truth was a person who was born in slavery in upstate New York in the late 1700s and when slavery was abolished in New York she was promised by her owner that she would be released and freed but he reneged on his promise because she injured her hand during that last year and he said she still owed him time and she said uh-uh <laughs> promise is a promise and she said I did not run away I walked away so she left there and she started on an, a remarkable life as a wandering preacher and she moved to New York City originally she was pretty fearless personally uh, she never learned to read or write but she was tall and imposing and reportedly a very good speaker and singer she also was not afraid to take on powers that be. She had a son um, who had been kept in slavery after she became emancipated and under the laws in New York at the time could not be sold out of state, but he was given away to somebody who moved out of state and she sued and got him back, uh, which was a, an immense victory for uh, a formerly enslaved black woman uh, working essentially on her own at that time. She moved to New York City where she worked for a while and one day she had a, a revelation that she would follow her calling to wander and preach and she changed her name to Sojourner Truth. She headed off east from New York City, crossed through Brooklyn down Long Island, started to work her way up the Connecticut Valley, was looking for a place to spend the winter, was thinking of going to one of the uh, utopian communities that existed at the time, heard about the one in Northampton and came here and joined the uh, Northampton Association for Education and Industry, which at the time was located directly across the street here from what is now the David Ruggles Center. She lived with them for a long time, became a very valued and respected member of the community. It was a live-in community. They had uh, up to 120 people, I believe, living there at a time. She was in charge of the laundry, among other things. Everybody pitched in and had to do something. And then when the community disbanded after about four or five years, it didn't prove to be commercially successful. Some of the people who were involved in it remained in the area, including Samuel Hill, who started the Hill Institute, among many other institutions in Florence. He developed some of the land that he had acquired when he purchased the property of the community, and he laid out Florence, essentially, as it is now, and sold 
Sojourner Truth, a house on Park Street. At around that same time, she dictated her experiences as a narrative to one of the members of the community. It became published. Uh, it was a bestseller. She started a new career, essentially, touring and speaking on behalf of the rights of African Americans and women, and went all over the Northeast and um, became quite successful doing that and very well known to the extent that she was able to pay off her mortgage to Samuel Hill in about four years. Mm -hmm. uh, the house is still there on Park Avenue, mm -hmm. on Park Street, rather. And uh, she eventually moved to Battle Creek, Michigan, in her older age, to another community up there uh, where she died. But she was associated here with Florence for, I think, about 15 years. What was it about this neighborhood in Florence and that Northampton Association, that utopian society? What, what caused that spark? Who caused that spark and brought so many names that are now familiar to us uh, hundreds of years later to here in this neighborhood of Florence? The abolitionist movement was on the rise in the 1830s, and there were some white abolitionists from Connecticut who spied an empty silk factory here in Florence, including Samuel Hill, and they decided to buy it and form this community. And there was a movement of utopian communities at that time in different parts of the Northeast. And, and by utopian, I mean, we've got so an idea what that were, means, but what was their, what was their mission? living um, intentionally together, and this particular community, different from others, was focused on abolitionism. Mm -hmm. And they were reformers, so it wasn't just abolitionism. They saw the rise of capitalism, they saw that things needed changing in society, and they were going to live in an intentional way where there was equality for all. And they were trying to upset capitalism when, in regards to why they want, or were attracted to a silk mill, and you were telling me a little bit about Grow Food Northampton down right, the street, right. and some of the legacy of, of how they were trying to upset right. capitalism that way. Right, right. Well, one thing about this community was it was one person, one vote, which was extremely democratic. Men and women were equal. Blacks and whites were equal. Um, this was unheard of at that time. Grow food was their property at that time. They were growing food, they had cows, and they were um, producing, mul growing mulberry trees, which provided the silk, uh, the leaves for the silkworms so that they could produce their silk. And the silkworms, uh, were, were the, is this the Bombix moth that we've heard yes. about? And now we have the Bombix yes. Center for Arts and Equity right Absolutely. down the street from here, the, in homage saying. to that moth that made the yes. silk that was trying to upset exactly. the silk industry exactly. and, and capitalism for so, abolitionist means. So that is a nod to the work that these people did. And, you know, as Kevin said, when the community uh, folded after four and a half years, which was a relatively long period of time for an intentional community like this, but they didn't disappear. Many of them stayed, settled here, and continued to do their reform work, including Sojourner Truth. Unfortunately, David Ruggles, he died in 1849, just a few years after the association closed. He, he had many illnesses, um, but he had started his own water cure facility down on the Mill River where the Elks Lodge is and cured many other people, but unfortunately he couldn't cure himself. So we're at the David Ruggles Center in Florence, and you're two of the members of the board here. Show us some of the things in the museum that speak to you in particular that you think are particularly fascinating. As I mentioned, we're in sort of the Sojourner Truth room of this museum, but what are some of the other rooms we've well, got? let's take you to... Broke the museum. <laughs> this room is dedicated to Lydia Maria Child and other women abolitionists of the time. 
And early on, she was one of the w most prolific women writers of the era. Lydia ended up here in Northampton because she had married another abolitionist, David Child, and he had the idea that he was going to grow sugar beets as an alternative to slave-grown sugar. Again, to sort of upset yes, the financial stream absolutely. of the capitalism and there, behind slavery. And part of this whole free produce movement, so free produce and products that were not based on slave labor. And interestingly, Grow Food Northampton, again, right down the street, yeah. it's growing sugar beets yes. right we, now. We have a joint <laughs> garden between the Ruggles Center and Grow Food where we grow sugar beets, and we do field trips there with children and adults to, to share about that experiment. So there's a picture here of a sugar beet and it's nothing like the delicious beets that we eat. They're kind of oh. not very tasty and they take a lot of processing <laughs> to turn yeah. into sugar. Okay. There's yeah. a whole like Sesame Street thing about turning sugar beets into sugar. Oh, uh -oh. we're gonna have to look that up. But the last little piece about Lydia that connected her to here was that in New York City, she of course was involved with the abolitionist movement, as was David Ruggles, and they met, and at this point he was very ill, and she said, you know, you really need to take care of yourself and recover so you can keep doing the work, and she recommended that he come up here to the association, and he did. And became a member and stayed the rest of his life, which was seven more years. We'll hear more about abolitionist Lydia Mariah Child with author Lydia Moland next week on the show. Coming up, more of our tour of the David Ruggles Center in Florence. Plus a crime-fighting, tattooed, queer, chain-smoking nun. And we'll hoist a pint of White Lion beer with owner Ray Berry. And send us your thoughts on Northampton's cancellation of the Pearl Street nightclub liquor license at the Fab 413 at NEPM.org. You're listening to the Fabulous 413 on NEPM. Let's check out another room in the David Ruggles Center here in Florence. My name is Kevin McQuillan, and I'm a member of the board of the David Ruggles Center. And I'm Kim Gerald, also a member of the board of the Ruggles Center from Northampton. So this room is uh, pretty much devoted to David Ruggles, and as Kim mentioned earlier, uh, he was born uh, a free man to a free family in uh, Norwich, Connecticut, in around 1810. Uh, he got a relatively good education. They were attached to uh, a church in the area. Uh, and then when he was a teenager, I think maybe he got into a little bit of trouble, and he went off to be a sailor uh, up and down the New England, New York coast, and supposedly, while he was doing that, became radicalized by contact with some forward-seeing fellow uh, sailors. And at some point, I think he was still a teenager, he moved to New York City and settled there and embarked on a really impassioned and energetic life, fighting slavery and for equality <clears throat> for black Americans. It's such a pity that not more is known about him because he was something of a superhero of this time. He burned very brightly for a relatively short period of time and he burned himself out, burned a lot of bridges in, in what he did. Uh, but he was very confrontational, fearless, took on uh, slaveholders. How was he taking them on? From here? Well, like, one of the things that happened in New York City, at the, in New York at the time, and we're talking about the 1830s, New York was extremely reliant on the cotton trade in the South. All the financing for it, all the insurance for it, a lot of the uh, exportation of it took place through New York City. So it was a very 
slave-friendly structure in the city government at the time. When it came to repatriating slaves or to their, uh, so to speak, restoring them to their owner, people who had escaped from slavery, who had walked away, run away from it in whatever fashion, they had a whole mechanism that facilitated that with the minimum of involvement by the courts or any due process whatsoever. So they would take these escaped slaves as they saw them and send them back, get fat fees for it, to the extent that they began to just pick up free black people off the streets. It, it was a racket, the, the worst kind. There was a notorious case where they picked up a woman with her six children, I believe, off the street and sent them down to the New Orleans uh, slave trade, where they would have all been sold and split up and so forth, and other people would have gained the proceeds. David Ruggles was fiercely against this kind of thing, would oppose the kidnapping club, as they were referred to. In the courts, he would physically confront people who had come to take slaves back south. He would go to people who visited New York with slaves and try and get the slaves to leave them so that they could be free. He was involved in several high-profile cases, not all of which were successful, but some were. Uh, he became very well known as a conduit in the earlier days of the uh, Underground Railroad, a major source in New York City for people who were escaping from the South, among whom was Frederick Douglass, who came to him as Frederick Bailey, uh, stayed with him in his apartment in New York City, was married in Ruggles' apartment in New York City. Frederick Douglass was intending to go at the time to Canada, but Ruggles, because of his seafaring connections and because of Douglass's own experience on the docks in Baltimore, got him a job instead in New Bedford. And so he moved to New Bedford and then to Lynn and remained in the United States and became that major, major figure, largely because of the early intervention and assistance that he received from David Ruggles. Was this area where we are right now in Florence, Northampton, part of the Underground Railroad, an actual stop on the Underground Railroad? There are places, even in this yeah. village, right, that were considered Underground Railroad stops, right? Yeah, there are, and uh, several of them were people who were involved in the association. Which is that utopian right. community that was right here in this neighborhood. So just across from where the Grow Food Northampton's Lydia Child Garden is, uh, on the other side of the street there beside the soccer fields, is the old Ross Homestead, which I believe is the only building that was occupied by a member, original member of the association that is still standing in the same place uh-huh. in Northampton. A lot of those houses were moved around a lot of the time, so there are some other houses that got moved. But that was definitely a stop on the, the Underground Railroad. En route towards Canada? Or did, or did any of those people on the Underground Railroad decide they were going to stay some here people, because of... Yeah. The, yeah. Some yeah. people did stay here, um, and that was part of what made this uh, somewhat diverse community in the 1840s, 50s. Some were free blacks. We think that about 10% of the community of Florence was African American. Now we're talking about 600 total people, Mm -hmm. so we're talking maybe around 60 people. 
And part of the reason people settled here was because of the Northampton Association. There was a friendly community of abolitionists. There were even black members. And there were other African Americans here. So people felt somewhat safe. And it wasn't urban. It wasn't like in New York City where you were in danger of being kidnapped all the time. But unfortunately, in 1850, there was the Fugitive Slave Act. It made it very punitive for anybody who was helping African Americans, and there was even less protection than before. And several families from Nonatuck Street, there were the Wilsons and the Coopers who lived down the street, did decide to go to Canada. The Coopers that like run Cooper's Corner? No, a different Cooper. <laughs> that's right down the street too. <laughs> yes, exactly, a different Cooper, yes, yes. But you know, it's interesting because like right after the Fugitive Slave Act, there was a big uh, meeting downtown organized by 10 African Americans of this community. This is kind of unheard of. They organized a protest. Um, against the Fugitive Slave Act, asked for the community to support them. Um, and we have the billing here that, that talks about, sadly, David Ruggles had just died the year before, but he would have been there too. One of the interesting thing about David Ruggles is, uh, obviously he helped Frederick Douglass, and Frederick Douglass was one of the first people in America to make use of photography, which was new at the time. There are so many fabulous images of Frederick Douglass taken throughout his life that were used in uh, his, all his campaigns and all his work. David Ruggles just pre-existed that, uh, of the opening up of, of photography. There are no photographic images of David Ruggles. The only thing that we have is this political cartoon that was published in New York during one of his more high-profile cases that he was involved in. So this is the only image that we have of him. It's a drawing. It's a drawing, a political cartoon, but obviously it's pretty detailed. He was known to be a snappy dresser. Mm -hmm. uh, he looks snappy in that. Yeah. <laughs> and and the two people yeah. with him are well known, and there are photographic images of them. And these are pretty accurate depictions. So the assumption is that this is also an accurate depiction of David Ruggles. And if I'm not mistaken, was this in the 1838? Is this one? Uh, Douglas was staying with him? I think, I think while was, he was in court, yes, yes. while Douglas was staying with him, uh, Ruggles was actually in court uh, uh -huh. for this case. Uh -huh. And that's what Douglas always said, that David Ruggles was his mentor, not only his friend, but his mentor. He saw a black abolitionist right when he got here out of slavery, and he saw a black abolitionist at work taking all these risks. So it really made a big impact on, on Douglas. And Douglas, of course, visited here mm -hmm. while the association was in existence and Ruggles lived here. And then there were so many other well-known abolitionists involved in the, in the association, including George Benson, who was one of the prime movers of it, was a brother-in-law of William Lloyd Garrison. So there were all these interconnections in the abolitionist scene in New England at the time. Ruggles, Sojourner Truth, Garrison... Lydia Child, they all fed into it. The nexus of those connections was here in Florence. And at the time, Florence was nothing. Thanks to Kevin McQuillan and Kim Gerald from the board of the Ruggles Center for the tour. You can book your own tour by going to davidrugglescenter.org. Coming up, Northampton author Margot Dwayi, who will be at the 
Odyssey in South Hadley this coming Monday on her new book, Scorched Grace. I'm Monty Belmonte. I'm Khalees Smith. You're listening to The Fabulous 413. Scorched Grace is a new novel about a chain-smoking, heavily tattooed queer nun who puts her amateur sleuthing skills to work to tackle a case that hits a little too close to home. Written by Northampton author Margot Duwaihi, who will be at The Odyssey in South Hadley this coming Monday, speaking in conversation with Deborah Jo Immergut, who... Gives a nice blurb on the back of the book. Margot joins us here in the Fabulous 413. Thank you so much. It's so fabulous to be here. Thank you for having me. I'm a huge fan of you both. And I love public media, New England public media. So it's a win, 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 win. We're glad to have you on this uh, premiere week of the show. We got a notification from Ilana earlier in the offices here saying that somebody heard the promo on the air, called and said that they were going to go to the library to find this book. Wow. And Immediately. I, and I <laughs> thought, incredible. well, you should I don't buy <laughs> it to give Margot a little <laughs> well, bit of extra coin. But chance? yes. We do love the library. And the I believe that the book is now at Forbes Library. So oh, thanks to the incredible librarians and just everybody in the book ecosystem. I love that. Thanks I, whoever called in. She's in store for a real fun read. This was a <laughs> quick, fun read. Absolutely. Uh, we both read the entire book. Oh, um, wow. it is, it's called Scorched Grace. It's a sister holiday mystery and the debut of this character that you've created. Yes. Tell us about your main character, Sister Holiday. So as a huge mystery fan my whole life, I've always loved that insider-outsider type of sleuth. So sometimes, yes, of course, love Holmes, love Poirot, love Luther, love that investigative mind. But something about the hard-boiled style, that grit, the raw kind of obsession has always captivated me. So I wanted to write a sleuth that trafficked in the noir and hard-boiled traditions, but kind of blasted a path forward that was completely original and unique and felt like it had emotional truth with what I think is fascinating about mysteries, about the state of the nation, you know, interesting intersections of identity and queerness and how that influences the way we move through the world, who we look at, who we don't, and how some of those ways of seeing those lenses can contribute to a sleuth who also is a mystery fan herself. So there's a lot of intertextual nods. You'll be, you know, hearing or reading about some Jessica Fletcher realness. Yeah. And, you know, so. Yeah, the and, Jessica Fletcher yeah. murder she wrote thing definitely came to mind a bunch of different times. And then, you know, with the new TV show Poker Face, have you been yes. seeing this? Love oh. it. Love it. Yeah. Very if you're Columbo-esque. A fan- oh, yeah. Yes. I made my son watch the end of a Columbo episode so that he could get why Poker Face makes a lot of sense. But then if you are if you like that genre at all as television, I think you're going to love uh, Scorch Grace. Oh, it's also a, a Gillian Flynn selection. Is that what it's called? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Gillian Flynn, Dana Scully from The X-Files, another show I'm watching with same said son. Uh, tell me about oh. that relationship. What what's her book club all yeah, about? Yeah, it's a, well, it's a good on the on the Jillian, but Gillian. So I'll, I of course didn't know how it was pronounced either. Is but it Jillian? Yeah, Gillian. It's actually Gillian Flynn, Gillian who's Flynn. the author oh. of Gone Girl and Sharp Objects. Oh. Yes, <laughs> but I. I'm so a which huge, one is this? I'm no, a huge Scully fan. You were t- Gillian Anderson. Well, Gillian Gillian. Anderson, Gillian oh, Flynn. Yeah. And it's actually a great... Good job, Monty. I love that. A it's great good to mess up live on the radio. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> it's all just a celebration of fierce women and, you know, people who kind of march to the beat of their own drummer. So I love Scully. I'm I think like, Gillian I'm Anderson a, loves yeah. this, too. I'm going to say she blurbed the book. I'm going to send totally this to her also. Factually um, accurate. So Gillian Flynn, who's the had a lot of wild success 
delights us with her own, you know, mysteries, of course, Gone Girl, which is a global phenomenon, Sharp Objects, Dark Places, writing about highly unreliable narrators. She kind of changed the course of domestic noir in a lot of ways. And you know, was willing to face some issues that were very complex. And I have the hugest respect for her. Found out that she had read my novel. She started her own imprint to kind of pay it forward and discover new authors. And I say that as a, a humble, you know, nobody in the Emily Dickinson, I am nobody. Who are you? <laughs> I was, you know, writing in obscurity for about 20 years, mostly poetry. Started writing mysteries as long-form expressions of this craft that I love and also noir in which the world, everyone's fallen, but those flickers of of light within that landscape are really appealing to me. So yes, I'm her debut title for Gillian Flynn's new publishing imprint with Zando. She's just a, a great, you know, hardcore feminist and believes in pushing the genre forward. So I'm still kind of in disbelief in a fugue state of delight and it's all very surreal. I'm just rolling with it. <laughs> so uh, Sister Holiday is not from New Orleans, but goes through a long series of things and ends up there. And that city ends up kind of being her redemption. Why set it in New Orleans? It's a place of dramatic renewal amidst the storms and amidst the kind of everlasting threats that are upon it. You know, not just the storms, but... Uh, in other, you know, ways in terms of, you know, just population change. And there's just a remarkable vitality that I, I find so renewing there whenever I go. I lived there for two years, not long enough. But I've, I felt like it was the ideal place to set a mystery because I wanted to study it forever. So this is the first in a trilogy. And I feel like it's its own protagonist, you know, and everyone has a unique relationship, obviously, that lives there or has traveled through there. And I thought that it would be interesting to try to explore it just through this individual's experience that is wholly her own. And, and also as she comments on what she observes, you know, the way people interact with it also. And so she's just, you know, listening to it all the time, listening to not only the music, but just the life of the city. Plus, New Orleans it has this mixture of like the sacred and the profane in so many different ways as a city. And then you've taken a nun who, as we've said many times, is tattooed, chain smoking. Came up in the punk scene. Yeah. And, yeah. And it was in a band and things <laughs> like that. And then uh, I won't divulge why she has become a nun, but it is a, a big part of, of the story and makes it a fascinating part of the story. Uh, what's your and we're speaking with Margot Duwahi, who'll be at the Odyssey in South Hadley this coming Monday and has written this book, Scorch Grace. What's your own personal relationship to Catholicism? I grew up Catholic, so there was a lot of things that really uh, I could relate to. Tangentially and... Catholic. Yeah. <laughs> me? Oh, no, no I went me. to Mass every no, week. No, I said oh, me. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so yes. what's your relationship to Catholicism? I also grew up in the Catholic Church, and my family's very religious, very you know respectful of the tradition, and I moved away from it as I, as I got older, and it wasn't you know a, a real definitive line. Of course, I you know came out or was sort of pushed out you know at <laughs> about age twenty and out of the closet, out of the closet, a, yeah, you know, and movie. yeah, and I feel like there's for me the writing of a character who is an uh, unapologetic, very proud lesbian as well as a Catholic nun is a representation of queer futures and a way that you can live the life you want to live no matter what it might seem like in terms of dichotomies or tensions. So, of course, it's a fictional world. We still, you know, the, the Pope still kind of runs the show and 
Um, but my own experience with Catholicism is, of course, nuanced and complex, as I think religion is for everybody. And yet there's this framework, and I've seen it bring a lot of comfort and a lot of despair to people that I love. But I think anything that brings people a sense of serenity and peace is a glorious thing. I also love the stained glass. I loved the... The cover, even, the cover the, features stained glass beautifully. Yeah. The kind of... The way that women feature kind of in a lot of unexpected ways, of course, through certain tales and stories. But I just wanted to explore it, you know, from that artistic lens as well and, and really honor it as well as test it, explore it, interrogate it. It would have been really easy for you to kind of attack Catholicism with this particular character, and you don't. You treat it very kindly, and I, I think that was an interesting take on, on the whole thing. It seems like it's something that is very meaningful to your character, Sister Holiday. Is that still something that's meaningful to you somewhere in your recesses? That's a great question. I, it is meaningful yeah. to me. I've not gone to Catholic Mass except for funerals and weddings for a long time, but it it informs me in a way that I feel like I would. There's a lot to criticize about Catholicism, but I'm not going to do it in a, a mean spirited and hurtful way. And the book does that same thing, I think. Thanks. I I want this to be a book of questions. It's a book of clues and questions, and some characters put them together, some don't. And of course, there's this institution that's at the source of tremendous pain and damage and institutional oppression. And again, there are also people who find tremendous peace, rebirth, renewal through it. So for me, it was less uh, making that sort of polemical argument and just seeing how characters can find their way through things or stumble and make bad choices, make good choices, and really give throw, throw a lot of uh, challenges towards our character's way as she's trying to unlock this riddle and solve this mystery. I'm really looking forward to seeing how these characters evolve over the course of your three books, for sure. Um, I, you mentioned something about queer culture and, and queer futures in Catholicism, but I think actually that harkens back to the past of the Catholic Church as well, especially with lesbianism. Talk about like the queer communities and Catholicism, or just queer communities in Western Mass, because you came back here from, from New Orleans, and that had to be an interesting choice too. Absolutely. Yeah. And there is there is so much, you know, St. Sebastian's, of course, is a a queer nod to Derek Jarman. And there's a lot of high camp signatures in this book. Right. You know, they sit around (laughs) reading the nuns sit around reading the book of Judith in which, you know, (laughs) Judith and Holofernes have an interaction. So I the camp expression of queer culture is really important to me. I, I love it. I find so much resonance and also dissonance with it. But, of course, there's a great history. You know, in medieval convents was a kind of sanctuary for queer women and lesbians. And so I try to bring that into the discourse, too, in a way that the characters really inhabit it. We're speaking with Margot Duwaihi, who will be at the Odyssey in South Hadley this coming Monday, speaking in conversation with Deborah Jo Imbergut about her book, Scorched Grace, about this nun sister holiday that we've been talking an awful lot about. It was uh, got a nod as an editor's pick. In the New York Times book review this past Sunday, which was thrilling to see, knowing that you were coming on. We were talking about it on the Today Show. And uh, I think um, maybe we should invite her to stick around for the last segment here. Yeah. 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 You might enjoy it. Yeah, I think so. I bless that choice. (laughs) (laughs) Coming up, given that it's our first Friday here on NEPM, maybe we should have a beer. I'd have a beer. I'll definitely have a beer. We're going to talk beer and the only... I think we might be wrong about that one, but Black Owned Brewery in Western Massachusetts with Ray Berry from White Lion and Springfield.
And speaking of drinking, we want to hear your thoughts on Northampton's decision to pull the Pearl Street nightclub's liquor license. Send us an email at thefab413 at nepm.org or try to give us a call, 1-800-639-9120. We know you're not used to calling in and talking in the middle of the day on NEPM. We'll get you there eventually. Coming up in the fabulous 413 here on NEPM. Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. I'm Khalees Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. Western Mass is awash in microbreweries and has developed a reputation as a beer lover's haven. But there is only one black-owned brewery that we know of, at least, in The 413, and it's right across the street from us here in Springfield, White Lion Brewing. And joining us is the owner of White Lion, Ray Berry. Thank you for coming over. Thank you for having me. It was a quick walk over. <laughs> you <laughs> had Couldn't to come get so here far. quick enough, I tell you. <laughs> and you've had all this beer with you this whole time, and, and we yeah. have behaved ourselves for the entirety of the show, despite the fact that I thought it was Jillian Flynn was from the X-Files. I can't believe it. I had not yet been drinking. I know. That's now who knows no what excuse. I'll say when we're going to crack this That's right. open. And it's not just the first black brewery in Springfield, because I know that part is true. Correct. First black brewery in Springfield. Absolutely. Of all time. Yeah. Uh Yes. But it's the first of Springfield's breweries since Prohibition. What is? Do you feel yeah. the weight of being first in so many categories? Well, let me say, there's been there was a rich history of brewing in the city of Springfield. Right. Our very own Dr. Seuss, the Geisel family, was one of the original breweries in the city. Prohibition hits. There were a couple of breweries that tried to reestablish themselves immediately after Prohibition, but was unable to do so. And then the craft boom took off, right? There was craft breweries popping up all over the place. So we were truly the first craft beer brand. I say brand, not brewery, brand, to recognize the city of Springfield as its its home. There's another brewery, Nano Brewery, in Indian Orchard that had opened its tap room a little bit before our tap room opening up downtown. So um, they are, in essence, the true first, (laughs) but we're the first to recognize the city as, as our home. What's your favorite style of beer that you brew? Well, we have a great team of brewers. I mean, so Mike Yates is the is the godfather of brewing and is the architect of our liquid at White Lion. So we're very fortunate to have him. My favorite style really does bounce all over the place. So there's no one favorite. I can go from an IPA to a stout to a Pilsner, um, and it depends on my mood at that moment. Right. So if I were to leave here today, I'm probably going to go towards an IPA. I'm in that mood today. Right. So that's where I'm at. So I'll probably pick up the the Marcus Canby or uh, our Super Dank, something along those lines. Tell me about the relationship with Marcus Canby, the legendary, you know, UMass connected basketball player. And then the connection with the second brewery in Amherst itself. Right. Yeah, we're very excited. Um, That relationship with Marcus was really built by another NBA all star, um, Travis Best. Travis was a local phenom, Central High School, went to Georgia Tech, first-round draft pick, went to the NBA Finals. And every year, Travis would put on a Hall of Fame event during the Hall of Fame weekend. And uh, COVID hit, and he put a pause to that. But then when you know some of the things were, were relaxed, he wanted to bring it back and immediately spoke with me and the team and said, hey, White Line just opened up. Let's create this, this new attraction post-COVID and highlight what you're doing here in the city of Springfield. 
And it so happens that Marcus Canby and his business manager were going to attend that evening or that weekend. <laughs> and that's really how the bridge started. So it was by way of local relationships, local partnerships, and our good guy, Travis Best, right here, Springfield Product. I see that you have Marcus Canby beer here. We do have Marcus maybe, here. Maybe we should uh, maybe we should open that one Let's up first. Crack. Let's it's crack. Let's crack it open. Margo? Hey. Thanks. Margo, do this I the hear the author of Scorched Grace so is here? So then Ray can stay in front. Here we go. This is all live on the radio. I'm going to open it. <laughs> This may be the first time this has also happened in the NEPM studios. I was going to open just one, but, you know, Ray handed Why us each a can. Just one? Right. So speaking of, like, doing things with the community, you do a lot with the community. Block parties and equity training. <laughs> like, talk about, like, getting involved, like, in our home here and just being a part of it. Well, the region is my home. The region has embraced me. I'm a transplant from New Jersey. Found my way here by way of American International College, undergrad and grad, Springfield College. So, you know, when you're entering into the new community, you're looking to find friends, associates, people to embrace you. And it was a lot, a lot of warmth and a lot of welcoming. And um, I've been very fortunate enough to call the city of Springfield my home, call the, the region Western Mass my home. And my career really started in a nonprofit quasi-public space. So that's, that's the essence of community, right? You're, you're, you're engaging. You're trying to move the needle in the right direction. And uh, that's the cloth that, and the principles that are part of White Lion, um, being part of the conversation, trying to make the community a better place to work and live and play in. And uh, it's just natural for us as a collective to have those key conversations and try to move forward as a, on a unified front. I know you were involved with Hop Forward Equity. Have you encountered, what kinds of inequities have you encountered in the brewing community? Because as a, a black woman who enjoys beer, there's not a whole lot of us in the craft beer community. There's always more than I expect, but there's not enough. Correct. No, you, I, I hear you. <laughs> so statistically, there's over 9,000 breweries in the United States. Less than 1% are black or brown owned. There are approximately 200 or so breweries in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, and there's only a handful of us that are black or brown owned. And by the way, in Western Mass, White Lion is not the only one. All right, answers the question. <laughs> right. We weren't sure. What are and the like, other ones? So we have our friends over in East Lalmetto, Tansy, um, brew practitioners. Right. Nice. Used to be in Florence. Used and to used in to Florence. be in Florence. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and then we have uh, our friends in Belchertown trying to open up a brewery. Oh. Um, veteran owned. And one of the co-owners or, yeah, one of the co-owners is, is, uh, is African American. So, um, yeah, so we're, again, we all work together in a collective way. And there's a couple breweries on the eastern part of the state. Um, but again, it's all about trying to uh, change the conversation. There's a perception that breweries or tap rooms have, uh, tend to be male, white, dominant. And um, White Lion is not afraid to have those key conversations by just stating, hey, listen, at the end of the day, we all have to come together in a collective front. And that's the reason why we call White Lion White Lion. Right. White Lion is a symbol of good for humankind. It's an extension beyond race, color, creed, or gender. So it doesn't matter who you are, where you come from. At the end of the day, it's about sharing in a common experience. So we want to bring everyone into the collective. We want black, brown, white, 
doesn't matter gender identity. We want you to be part of the conversation and be part of the experience and be comfortable in that space. Khalees, you are a huge fan of the White Lion Oktoberfest. I am very Do you want to go hard about that right now while you've got Ray Berry here? Okay, so I think the Oktoberfest, I think Martins in general are a, a hard style to nail because they need to be like a little sweet, but they need to be a little clean too. And sometimes they just end up on too, like too far into the sweet end of things, but yours. The White Lion Oktoberfest is one of the finest that I've come around. It's just like, it's perfectly sweet, and perfectly clean, and it was so hard to find when it came out. It came out on like four packs, and like I went looking in all the places. It was just so difficult, but like you had a special, and I went and I bought too much of it, and now it's all gone, and I just have to wait until next year, and y'all will have to get it next year too. Well, we're so pleased that you enjoyed it. <laughs> and again, Mike Yates, our head brewer, my business partner, he's been with the conversation from day one. He's been around the Western Mass craft beer scene for a long time. And um, he, Amherst Brewing, Building 8, White Lion, helped out other brewery startups. So we're very fortunate to have his experience and expertise day in and day out, on the table, moving the liquid forward, being creative, uh, onboarding new assistant brewers to coach and help and motivate them to go on their way. So uh, we're, we're very pleased about that. <laughs> Ray Berry, the owner of White Line, our neighbor across the street, you're going to get sick of us since we're so close to you. Never that. <laughs> Monday on the show, preview of the Back Porch Festival, taking over downtown Northampton next weekend. And with the renewed interest in UFOs, thanks to Chinese spy balloons, we'll talk about a local UFO sighting in Sheffield, Mass., with our resident astronomer, Mr. Universe, Mr. Salman Hamid. Betsy Cordes is our engineer and console platform consultant. Kara Foster, Bart Rankin, and Chuck Dubé are machine finaglers. Tony Dunn is our director and Gossip Friday buddy. Music courtesy of local heroes, spouse, homebody, and the brass. I'm Monty Belmonte. I'm Khalees Smith. See you tomorrow in the fabulous 413.